Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of rape and murder, including the sexual assault and murder of minors and descriptions of human remains. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. An investigator opens the trap door in a bedroom closet. He peers down and sees a layer of grimy water. He plugs in a sump pump and listens as it drains away the freezing liquid. Once the water's gone, he dons his coveralls, clicks on a flashlight, and descends. The ceiling is precariously low, forcing the evidence technician to drop to his elbows to maneuver through the space. Loose mud squelches with every move. Small red worms wriggle out of his way. It smells so bad that he can barely breathe. The evidence tech takes a closer look at the earth he's crawling through and notices grayish waxy dots. He recognizes these particles. They're pieces of putrefied fat. Something is buried under here. He pulls out a small shovel and pushes it into the soft earth. He hears a clink, then reaches in. He finds a human bone. He yells two words up to his colleagues. Charge him. Now that human remains have been found under his house, John Wayne Gacy can finally be charged with murder. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Today, we're focusing on the victims of John Wayne Gacy. The serial killer spent six years killing teenagers and young men and buried most of their remains under his house. When the authorities finally caught him in 1978, they found dozens of decomposing corpses. The vast majority of them were completely unrecognizable, and investigators spent decades struggling to identify them. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. It's 1978. John Butkovich would have been 22 years old this Christmas. His parents... Theresia and Marco might want to get him a gift, but he's been missing for more than three years. He isn't coming back. As a record-breaking snowstorm bears down on Chicago, Theresia and Marco try to focus on their other five children. They need to make the best of another holiday season, but they can't ignore the empty spot at the dinner table where John used to sit. 
They think about the last time they saw him in the summer of 1975. John was 18 years old and had a job with a contractor named John Wayne Gacy in the suburbs. He'd been working for Gacy for about a year, but he was certain that his boss was withholding some money. John left his house in late July to confront Gacy and collect his back pay. After he left, John Butkovich was never seen again. The parents knew that Gacy had something to do with John's disappearance. They filed a missing persons report and told the police to investigate him. When the officers ignored them, they called Gacy to confront him on their own. But he played dumb. Months and then years went by with no sign of their son. The family lost hope, but that peculiar three-part name continued to echo through their heads. John. Wayne. Gacy. On December 22, 1978, Marko Butkovich turns on the radio. He putters around the house, half listening to the news of the day, and then he hears that name again. He yelps in recognition and calls his wife into the room. They lean in to hear the news. John Wayne Gacy's been arrested. The police found human bones under his house, and the authorities expect to find more. This isn't just a hunch. Gacy confessed. He said he'd killed 32 men and boys. 26 of their bodies were in the crawl space under his bedroom, and others were hidden around the property. Few were dumped in the river, too. He even drew a map to show where he left them. Unfortunately, the police have no idea who these young men were. The bodies are unrecognizable, and Gacy only remembers six of their names. The horrifying details spew out of the radio, and Theresia and Marko Butkovich clutch each other tightly. They both know what the other is thinking. Their son is one of those bodies. He has to be. Gruesome images may have flooded their minds. Their son rotting under Gacy's floorboards, worms crawling through his remains, his skeleton picked clean. They knew that Gacy was dangerous, but they couldn't have imagined this. No one could. They closed their eyes and focused on the staticky broadcast. A county medical examiner named Robert Stein has begun working on identifying them, but he doesn't know how long it'll take. So Theresia and Marco wait next to the radio, hoping for another update from Gacy's House of Horrors. Meanwhile, Robert Stein paces around John Wayne Gacy's property. The medical examiner has been supervising the excavation for hours, watching the evidence techs bring bone after bone up from the crawl space. There seem to be dead boys everywhere. But before he can figure out who they are, Stein and his team need to get an idea of how many are down there. They dig for days. Crowds gather on the snowy street, and news cameras keep watch as the police carry body bags outside. Every night, Stein shuffles in front of reporters and tells them the current tally. By the end of the day on November 22nd, they found four corpses. On December 23rd, five. And on the 26th, ten. It doesn't seem like they'll be slowing down anytime soon. Already, he can see some patterns emerging. They're all male and seem to be either teenagers or young men. They were clearly killed over a long period of time. Some bodies still have flesh on them. Others are complete skeletons. The older ones seem to have been buried carefully, but the more recent ones were barely covered by the soil. A few still have their shoes on. Some of the cadavers have fabric stuffed in their mouths, 
and others have ropes tied around their necks. It looks like most of them died from strangulation. These details line up with Gacy's confession, which had some stomach-turning details. He used a few tactics to lure young men into his orbit. He'd offer local high schoolers jobs or pick up young men in Chicago. Then he'd trap them in the house and strangle them with a rope. He usually raped them, too. So Stein has a decent idea of how these people died and just how awful their last moments were. But he needs to figure out who they are. And he also needs to verify the six victims who Gacy already identified. He knows this will be a long, slow process, and his tools are limited. Most of the bodies don't have skin anymore, so fingerprints are out of the question. But the jaws and teeth are still intact. This means he can use forensic dental analysis, comparing the teeth and the skull to official medical records. But there's one more tool the medical examiner has at his disposal. It seems likely that the majority of these victims were reported missing after they disappeared. That means their names are already scattered around police archives in the area. But the Chicago Police Department files nearly 20,000 missing persons reports every year. 14,000 if they only count kids under 18. Stein doesn't have the resources to sift through all those. He thinks about how he can narrow it down. Meanwhile, the number of recovered bodies continues to tick upward. Evidence teams find the 28th body on Gacy's property on December 29, 1978, just one week after Gacy's initial confession. Two bodies found in the river are linked to him as well. Stein knows that all of these bodies have parents, siblings, and friends who are looking for them, or who were looking for them when they disappeared. He just needs to get in contact with those people. On that same day, Stein issues a statement in the newspaper asking any parents of missing children to submit their child's dental charts. Terezio and Marco Butkovich have been glued to the news for the last week. The knots in their stomach tighten with every passing day. Stein's request for dental records probably feels like a relief because it gives them something to do. They scramble to find John Butkovich's charts and send them in as soon as possible. All over the world, dozens of families are trying to do the same. They feel that pang of recognition whenever Gacy's name is mentioned and wonder if their missing loved one fell prey to him. One of those families is the McCoys, who live in Omaha, Nebraska. They lost track of their son, Timothy McCoy, in 1972. He was 16 at the time and had just spent Christmas in Michigan. He decided to head home by himself on a Greyhound bus. There was a brief layover in Chicago, and he was never seen again. Tim's family spent years wondering where he'd gone. When Gacy started showing up in the news, many of them were certain that he killed Tim. The McCoys hear about the call for dental records and jump into action. One of Tim's aunts volunteers to send them in. After seven years, they're one step closer to resolution. Now all they can do is wait. Terezio and Marco Butkovich are the first set of parents who get an answer. It happens on December 30th, 1978. They're sitting in their Chicago home, squinting at a portable TV. They hear a knock on the door. It's two plainclothes detectives ready to deliver the news they never wanted to hear. The detectives tell Teresia and Marco that their son's charts were a match. 18-year-old John Butkovich had been buried under John Wayne Gacy's garage for the last three years. He's the first victim to be identified. The detectives probably don't give the full story. 
They probably don't tell the parents that John Botkovich was one of the few victims who Gacy named, or that he was buried alone in concrete far away from the crawl space. The most basic facts seem hard enough to swallow. After the officers leave, the Butkoviches turn off their TV and radio. They pick up the newspapers and fold them neatly, hoping to never see Gacy's round, scowling face again. The house goes silent. They're devastated. But now, at least they know what happened to John. They've been asking questions for three years and have finally received an answer. And it's the most painful answer they could ever imagine. The detectives drive back to the station. It's never easy to deliver bad news, especially when it's this bad. But they need to get used to it because more identifications are coming. Three more families learn the awful truth on New Year's Day, 1979. This means that four of the bodies found at Gacy's house have been identified. But Robert Stein can't take a moment to celebrate. He knows that all of these matches came from dental records. And as of now, only a handful of families have sent those in. He wonders if the stigma around Gacy's case is stopping families from coming forward. They might be embarrassed that their sons could have been killed by a man who the papers describe as an admitted homosexual, or that their sons were fraternizing with someone like that in the first place. Since the call for dental records doesn't seem to be panning out, Stein and the other investigators decide to widen the scope of their search. They begin considering boys who went missing from Wisconsin, Iowa, and Indiana in addition to Illinois. Meanwhile, Prison officials continue to press Gacy for more information about his victims, but he refuses to say anything. Despite these roadblocks, in the first week of 1979, Robert Stein and his team use dental records to identify four more bodies, and they start to notice even more patterns. As it turns out, Five of the eight victims had connections to John Wayne Gacy's construction company. Two of them were confirmed employees. The other three said things that implied they were looking for construction work right before they disappeared. The police failed to notice this pattern as the teenagers vanished one by one. That was a massive oversight on their part, and as they look into Gacy's history, they find even more occasions when he slipped right out of their grasp. They find a file from 1975, when he was investigated for picking up teenage boys in Chicago's uptown neighborhood. And one from 1977, when Gacy allegedly used chloroform to sexually assault and torture a man he lured into his car. Gacy lost a civil suit and was charged with battery and another from 1977, when a 19-year-old said that Gacy kidnapped him at gunpoint and sexually assaulted him. Gacy was arrested for this, but not prosecuted. This failure to connect the dots brings a lot of public criticism, and the Chicago police know that their system needs an overhaul. So they decide to digitize all of their missing persons reports and load them into a database that can catch similarities between cases. Things like the missing person's employer or the neighborhood where they were last seen. They'd never developed a tool like this before and they hope that it can stop other serial killers and kidnappers in their tracks. But the authorities are still focused on the task at hand. On January 8th, they charged Gacy with seven counts of murder. That number seems awfully small, considering the 29 bodies that have been connected to him. The state waits to bring more charges until they have more names. Investigators figure out a few in late January, including one from the river. This one has a distinctive tattoo, which makes him easy to recognize. But he's an outlier. The rest of the bodies need to be matched up with dental charts, 
which are trickling in at a snail's pace. Back in Omaha, Timothy McCoy's family follows these developments with increasing frustration. They watch as name after name is announced and feel their hearts sink. Every headline feels like a reminder that they'll never know what happened to 16-year-old Timothy. They keep paying attention throughout the spring of 1979. The medical examiner announces four more identifications. All of them relied on medical records like dental charts and x-rays, but Timothy McCoy's name is never mentioned. It's not like the family ever hoped that Timothy was killed by John Wayne Gacy. All they wanted was an answer, and even that seems out of their reach. By mid-April, everything in the Gacy investigation seems to be slowing down. Officers find the 29th body on the property, which they believe to be the last one. Because four bodies were also found in the Des Plaines River, this brings the total to 33. Then the team decides to demolish Gacy's house so that no one will need to set foot in there again. Later that month, they bring more charges against him. He ends up with 33 counts of murder, but only 17 of the victims can be named. Robert Stein knows that a court date is coming and continues to push for more identifications. He uses dental records to match up one more name in May, but his office is clearly losing momentum. In late July, they try out a new tactic and release a list of items that were found on or near the bodies. These include a wedding ring, a Boy Scout's wristwatch, and a pair of jeans that were decorated with stars. Stein hopes that they'll jog the memory of a friend or family member. At least two of them do. The number of named victims climbs to 19. By the end of 1979, it's at 22. John Wayne Gacy's trial opens in early 1980. Before the state's attorney calls up any witnesses, he sets up a poster board in the front of the room. It lists the names of all the known victims. He calls Marco Butkovich to the stand and shows him a photo of his son, John. When Marco describes their last moment together, the attorney sticks the photo on the poster board above John's name. He does the same thing for all the other teenagers and young men. By the end of initial arguments, there are 22 portraits hanging in the front of the courtroom. They have crooked smiles and long, shaggy hair. A few have wispy mustaches or Coke bottle glasses. The jury is forced to look at them throughout the whole trial and imagine the lives they might have led. But those photos aren't the only thing on the board. There are also 11 empty slots, representing the victims who couldn't be identified. They stare down at the courtroom like hungry ghosts, begging to be recognized and named. The jury announces their verdict on March 12, 1980. Guilty on all charges. The next day, they sentenced John Wayne Gacy to death. It's a definite victory for the prosecution, but many of the victims' loved ones can't bring themselves to celebrate. They just want their sons, friends, and brothers back. As grim as this sounds, those 22 families are the lucky ones. They know what happened. 11 families are left wondering. The Cook County Sheriff's Department doesn't let up on their identification efforts just because the trial is over. Their work continues to pay off. About two weeks after Gacy's sentencing, Robert Stein tells the Chicago Tribune that he can name two more victims. 14-year-old Michael Marino and 16-year-old Kenneth Parker were close friends who disappeared on the same day in 1976. Dental charts and x-rays confirm their identities. 
This leaves nine bodies unidentified by the end of March 1980. But now that Gacy's officially on death row, public interest might be fading. The medical examiner tries to attract attention by releasing another list of items found with the bodies. He sends pictures to every police department in the area, but it doesn't lead to any breakthroughs. The authorities start to lose hope in the summer of 1980. They hand over the boys' skulls to a forensic sculptor and ask her to mold their faces out of clay. Then they distribute photos of these crude facial reconstructions far and wide. Stein begs parents to study the pictures, but even he seems to recognize that it's a last-ditch effort. The sculptures look more like animatronics than actual people, and it seems unlikely that anyone would recognize them. Once again, he asks for dental records from missing men and boys, insisting that this is his final attempt, but he isn't optimistic. He's only received 200 charts in the last year and a half, he still believes that families may be hesitant because they're scared of a positive identification. It wouldn't just mean their sons were slaughtered by a serial killer. It could also mean that they were gay or involved in sex work. Stein assures parents that not all of Gacy's victims belong to those stigmatized groups. But he raises the question of why the parents of these missing boys haven't come forward. It's clear that he's frustrated but he doesn't seem to consider any alternative explanations. Some of these young men might just not have anyone looking for them. They could be drifters who ran away from home years prior, or they could be estranged from their families due to their sexuality. And Stein doesn't seem to understand how difficult procuring medical records can be. The dentist could have moved, retired, or just gotten rid of their chart to make space. We also know that John Wayne Gacy trawled for victims in the poorer neighborhoods of Chicago's North Side. It's not unreasonable to imagine that some of these families couldn't afford dental care in the first place. No one seems to recognize these blind spots, though. They moved the investigation to the back burner in 1980 and spend the next year waiting for more information to come in. It doesn't. The trail has gone completely cold by the spring of 1981, and the Cook County Sheriff's Department seems to accept that. They decide to bury the unnamed bodies and move their remains from evidence lockers to coffins. Not all the remains, though. They keep the jaws and teeth, just in case. More than a hundred mourners show up for the burial on June 11th. The service includes a mix of Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish prayers, because no one knows the body's religious backgrounds. Robert Stein delivers the eulogy. The medical examiner says that his investigation isn't over, and that he doesn't want these people to be seen as mere numbers. But for now, that's all they can be. The anonymous victims are sent to different cemeteries all over the Chicago area. Authorities don't want to bring too much attention to the grave sites, so they mark each headstone with a simple phrase. We remembered. Five years pass with few developments. There's another blitz of coverage in 1986 when a pair of journalists publish a comprehensive book on Gacy. It features reams of exclusive material, and one of its most shocking passages is a detailed account of Gacy's first kill. The inmate had spoken about this boy on numerous occasions, but claimed not to remember his name. He said he picked him up at a Greyhound station in Chicago. The boy stayed at his house that night. Gacy stabbed him to death the next morning and threw his body in the crawl space. This was right after New Year's 1972. In the 2021 book, Boys Enter the House, author David Nelson describes how this victim is finally identified. At some point in 1986, a woman flips through a magazine at a doctor's office. She sees an excerpt about this incident. 
She's intrigued and wonders if it could relate to her long-lost cousin, Timothy McCoy. She starts reading, and certain details pop out. Chicago, Greyhound Station, 1972. This sounded just like Tim's story. And according to the article, this first victim still hadn't been identified. It had to be Tim. There was just one problem. Tim's aunt had sent in the dental records right after Gacy was arrested. The Cook County Medical Examiner never contacted the family about them. The McCoys assumed that his teeth weren't a match and did their best to move on. Now that this new information is right in front of her, the woman might have wondered if those assumptions were wrong. She contacts one of the journalists who helps her find the truth. As it turns out, the Cook County Medical Examiner never received Tim's charts. And it wasn't an issue with the mail. Tim's aunt never sent them. She wanted to shield the family from heartache, so she lied to them. The entire McCoy family is shocked. They can somewhat understand the aunt's choice, but they've been wondering about Tim's fate for more than a decade at this point. They've already done their grieving. Now they just want closure. So the family packs up Tim's dental records and sends them to the sheriff's office. For real this time. And sure enough, the records match up with the oldest body from the property. The McCoys can finally lay their doubts and Timothy to rest. They remove him from the anonymous grave and bury him next to his father in Omaha. It's been 14 years since he boarded that bus, but he's finally made it home. It's a triumphant moment. It reminds the authorities that progress is still possible. Timothy McCoy's was one of the nine bodies that they'd essentially written off in 1981. And now that he'd been reunited with his family, who's to say they can't do the same with the remaining eight? But despite the team's best efforts, the project stagnates for over a decade. Then, in 1994, two events changed the course of the investigation. First, John Wayne Gacy is executed. Even though he's refused to help the investigators for years at this point, there was always a possibility that he'd hand over some names or clues from death row. When he's killed by lethal injection in May 1994, any hopes of a last-ditch confession die with him. About two months later, Robert Stein dies too. The medical examiner is 82 years old. He dedicated 15 years of his life to naming Gacy's victims and successfully identified most of them. But most wasn't enough. He died with eight bodies left. It's not hard to imagine the memories of those anonymous boys tormenting him in his last moments, reminding him of the job he could never finish. The hunt for Gacy's victims is just another cold case now. It remains untouched for another decade. But a lot can change in 10 years. Somewhere around the turn of the century, DNA goes mainstream. Laws go into effect that require collection from certain types of convicts, and organizations like the FBI set up national databases. Tests become faster and more precise with every passing year. Soon enough, detectives across the country realize that all this new information isn't just helpful in active investigations, it can solve older cases too. In 2003, the National Institute of Justice recognizes the power of genetic evidence in missing persons cases and began funding research. And in 2007, they set up the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NAMUS. It's a bigger, more modern take on the tool that the Chicago police set up in 1979, a centralized database that can automatically find connections between missing persons cases, using things like DNA, 
fingerprints, and location. Even though the Gacy investigation set the template for these types of tools, the case itself sits dormant for nearly 15 years after Stein's passing. But then, one Cook County detective decides to give it another shot. Detective Jason Moran isn't interested in John Wayne Gacy, at least at first. After 11 years with the Cook County Sheriff's Department, he's heard enough about the serial killer. Moran prefers the cases that don't make as many headlines. In 2006, he became the first person in the department to close a case using DNA. He's got a reputation as the go-to guy for cases that no one else can solve. He is especially good at using modern techniques to identify unknown bodies. So in some ways, the task of naming Gacy's victims is made for him. He just doesn't know it. Until the fall of 2010. That's when the sheriff tells him to sift through some filing cabinets and find a few cold cases to revive. He pulls out a file labeled Gacy 1978. It strikes him as strange. He thought that every element of this case was solved. But then he sees another file. And another. All five drawers of the cabinet are stuffed with information about the serial killer and his victims. From the looks of it, eight of them are still unnamed. The detective flips through the documents. He follows Robert Stein's desperate search for dental records and he realizes that technology was the limiting factor in this case. DNA evidence could really make a difference. He checks the notes and sees that the victim's jawbones were sent to a climate-controlled evidence room at the medical examiner's office. If the bones are in good shape, he should be able to sequence the young man's DNA. Moran drives to the office and starts looking. He can't find them anywhere. He learns the sobering truth. The medical examiner's office cleaned out its lockers six months earlier in 2009. A consultant surmised that they'd done all they could with the jawbones and recommended they get rid of them. This evidence was put into a wooden coffin and dumped into a huge, unmarked grave behind a cemetery south of the city. It seems that the office didn't alert any other departments about this and didn't bother to collect DNA samples beforehand. When Jason Moran finds out about this, he's furious. It's bad form to get rid of any evidence before the case is closed, but throwing away these jawbones seems particularly egregious. Gacy chucked his victims into a mass grave and robbed them of their identities. Thirty years later, it feels like the authorities did the exact same thing. Even though Moran doesn't care about Gacy, he does care about justice. The least he can do is give the victims their names back. Maybe then, their spirits can finally be put to rest. He knows the jawbones are hidden in that graveyard. He just has to dig for them. Jason Moran takes a small team to the cemetery in June 2011. They use a backhoe to paw through the dirt and find dozens of wooden caskets, stacked one on top of the other. Moran takes his best guess and starts opening the boxes. He sorts through decomposing medical waste, animal carcasses, and unidentified bodies. Gory would be an understatement, but eventually he finds the jawbones. He ships the evidence off to a lab in Texas. But a month later, the lab gets back to him with bad news. The bones were so degraded that only four of them had decent genetic material. Sitting in a mass grave for months probably didn't help with that. In September 2011, Moran's team returns to the unmarked graves where the remaining four bodies are buried. As they brush away the dry, early autumn leaves, they might notice the inscription on the boys' headstones. It reads, We remembered. Well, 
Sometimes memory requires a bit of action. The team grabs their shovels and exhumes the bodies. They carefully remove the femurs, the bones that are most likely to contain DNA material, and send those to the lab. And they're in luck. The lab puts together two more DNA profiles in early October. They promise that the other two will be done soon. Now that the genetic profiles are locked down, Moran can move on to the next stage, asking the public for their genetic material. On October 12, 2011, the department organizes a press conference in downtown Chicago. Sheriff Tom Dart stands in front of a poster board with eight blank faces, much like the one shown at Gacy's trial. He issues a simple request to anyone watching. If they know any young men who went missing between 1970 and 1978, and they think Gacy could have anything to do with it, they should contact the office immediately. If they're a blood relative who can donate DNA, even better. The sheriff tells the press that he's looking to close the book once and for all on John Wayne Gacy, and he thinks that the department's new capabilities will make up for the shortcomings of earlier investigations. Moran and Dart are fully aware that multiple families were turned away from the original investigation because they couldn't submit dental records. They hope that these families hear about the renewed effort and give it another chance. The team also realizes that homophobia might have stopped a few people from coming forward during the 1970s and 80s, but attitudes towards sexuality have shifted dramatically, and they're optimistic about the outcome. Moments after the press conference wraps, Jason Moran's office is flooded with calls and emails. More than 100 people contact the office within the first few weeks. Moran winnows the list down and finds about 70 leads worth pursuing. One of his first candidates is William George Bundy, a 19-year-old who vanished in 1976. He's gotten two calls about William, and everything seems to match up. A friend says that he worked in construction. A younger sister says that he was heading to a party the last time she saw him. William fit the description of a Gacy victim to a T. He was a white teenager who hung out on Chicago's north side. There's evidence that he spent time at the Aragon Ballroom, a music venue that was already known as one of Gacy's hunting grounds. Moran gets William's sister to agree to a DNA swab, and after a month of testing, the results come back. There is a link between her DNA and one of the bodies, but it's not enough to confirm the body's identity. The detectives need a bit more evidence to say anything for certain. Then the investigators notice something. This body is missing two teeth. Both upper canines are gone, which is pretty rare and it looks like they were taken out while the young man was alive. Jason Moran follows up with a woman. She reveals that her brother did have his canine teeth taken out, and strangely enough, she has them. According to her, William needed braces, but her family couldn't afford them, so they opted to pull two teeth instead. William took the teeth home, after he disappeared, his sister held on to them. This is exactly what Moran needs. On November 29, 2011, the Sheriff's Department calls another press conference. They've cleared their first victim, William George Bundy. Sheriff Tom Dart replaces his blank poster with a photo. Later, Moran hangs that same picture on his office wall. It'd be natural to hope that soon enough, he'd have seven more. But after this early success, the leads start to dry up. Or at least the ones strictly related to the Gacy case do. Still, Moran continues to collect DNA samples from dozens of families. He hears stories about missing uncles, brothers, and friends. 
He does his best to figure out what happened to these boys and young men. The searches lead him to some unexpected places. In 2012, he connects a pile of human remains in Utah to a missing college student. In 2015, he figures out that a possible Gacy victim was actually murdered in San Francisco. He also identifies a body that was left in a forest near Chicago and another one found in New Jersey. In total, he solves 11 cold cases that have nothing to do with John Wayne Gacy. In a surprise twist, he also finds five of the possible victims alive and well. He's happy to reconnect them with their families, but there's still something nagging at him the seven unidentified Gacy victims. He leaves the tip line open, hoping for the next big lead. Sometime in 2017, it finally comes. A pair of siblings from Minnesota say that their brother, Jimmy Hawkinson, vanished in 1976 when he was 16 years old. He had run away from home and called his mother on August 5th, saying he was in Chicago. She never heard from him again. Jimmy's mother contacted the authorities right after Gacy was arrested. She was turned away because she didn't have the required dental records. Decades later, a teenage nephew of Jimmy Hawkinson becomes obsessed with the case and reads about the DNA developments. He convinces his father and aunt to submit DNA swabs to authorities. And lo and behold, the siblings' genetic markers are a near-perfect match with one of the bodies. Detectives check old missing persons reports just to be sure. Sure enough, it's Jimmy Hawkinson. The detective visits the family. He adds another face to the poster board and again asked the public for help. Two down, six to go. And then things slow down again. Moran works through several leads, but nothing comes of them. In 2019, he changes his approach. He decides to flip the process on its head. Waiting for families to contact him clearly isn't working anymore, so he'll use the victim's DNA to find them. Investigators in California had used a similar strategy to track down the Golden State Killer in 2018. He figures it's at least worth a try. Moran zeroes in on body number five. He sends the DNA sequence to a group of forensic genealogists. They upload it onto a public database called GEDmatch which holds user-submitted data from services like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe. The researchers find a few profiles that appear to be related to number five. Working with volunteers from the DNA Doe Project, investigators use government records and newspapers to build out this person's family tree and eventually find a man who vanished from public records in 1976. His name is Wayne Alexander. There wasn't a missing persons report filed on him, but he looks like he fell off the face of the earth in February of that year. He was 21 years old at that point, and he lived in a neighborhood where John Wayne Gacy liked to spend time. The team tracks down Wayne's living family members, and local police officers ask them to submit DNA. The family is surprised, they thought Wayne cut them off in his early 20s and was living his own life somewhere. They never considered the possibility of murder, but they agree to get tested. The results come back in October of 2021. Jason Moran boards a plane and meets the family in North Carolina. He delivers the news. Francis Wayne Alexander was killed by John Wayne Gacy. Moran returns to Chicago for yet another press conference. He stands next to the poster board again, now with three faces filled. Wayne's family provides a statement. They say that the news is not easy to hear and that, quote, 
Our only comfort is knowing this killer no longer breathes the same air as we do. We can now lay to rest what happened and move forward by honoring Wayne. Detective Moran and Sheriff Dart express their plans to move forward too. Moran wants to use similar techniques on the remaining bodies from Gacy's crawl space, but he's not sure how long that will take. His department is also planning to use GEDmatch and DNA testing on other cases in Cook County. According to Dart, there are hundreds of missing and unidentified persons cases that could be solved in this manner. That means there are hundreds of families who could finally receive the same small gift that the Butkoviches, McCoys, and Alexanders did. The gift of closure. As of this recording, five victims of John Wayne Gacy remain unidentified. The Cook County Sheriff's Office is still actively investigating the case. If you have a male blood relative who went missing between 1970 and 1979 and you are willing to donate a DNA sample, contact their office at 708-865-6244 or at cookcountysheriff.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on this investigation into John Wayne Gacy's victims, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Chicago Tribune archives extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Kylie Harrington Edited by Giles Hofseth and Andrew Kelleher. Fact-checked by Claire Cronin. Researched by Mickey Taylor. Sound designed by Russell Nash. And produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Carter Roy.